You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hello, guys. This is episode 68 with Dr. Jeffrey DeSarbo, and we are talking about the neurobiology of recovery. Dr. DeSarbo is here for round two. He was on episode 23, I believe, the neurobiology of eating disorders. And that's in general. We're talking about the neurobiology of recovery today, which is super, super fascinating. So a little bit about Dr. DeSarbo and then a little bit about what we're talking about. Dr. DeSarbo is a physician, psychiatrist, and the medical director of ED180, which is an eating disorder treatment in Garden City, New York. He has dealt with hundreds, actually now thousands of patients at this point. He's a certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor, does a ton of case consultation. He's one of the leaders in the field. The contribution that I find almost most helpful at this point is his video series on the neurobiology of eating disorders. So if you're a visual person and you really enjoyed what we talked about in episode 23, he has an entire YouTube video series, which you can find on his website. And I'll link to all of this in the show notes about the neurobiology of eating disorders on screen and broken down into smaller segments. So really in detail, really, really fascinating and interesting to understand your brain in connection with eating disorders and now in connection with recovery. Today, we're talking about the neurobiology of recovery, which, of course, we have to break down what the heck recovery is, you know, if it's possible, longer conversation about that, uh, which is, of course, we're talking about this in, in general terms because we're not talking about specific people. We're talking to you, and you can take whatever it is with a grain of salt and seeing what applies to you, what doesn't apply to you. This is simply his perspective. What's really fascinating is he shares beyond actual definitions, et cetera. He shares neurobiology in connection with recovery as somebody goes through an eating disorder and, and works toward recovery and the entire process of it. So that's an angle that I'm sure you've never heard of before. And then the last part of the conversation, so definitely do not skip out early, is our conversation about SEED, which is severe and enduring eating disorders and severe and enduring anorexia nervosa and um, palliative care. So this is a very, very tricky conversation. I know we just scratched the surface. It's become a little bit more of a hot topic lately. Um, And we talk about our personal professional experience and how that has sort of shaped our opinion. And of course, this is only the beginning of the conversation that I really hope for you is purely curiosity-based and hypothetical and not that you or any of your loved ones or your clients have ever experienced. I know sometimes that there's a lot of information in the podcast, which is very helpful, except you're not exactly taking notes or (laughs) thinking about the different things that you would ponder later. So if you're looking for more, you can definitely sign up for my newsletter. It goes out every single week on Thursday. And what I've been doing recently is incorporating a lot more concrete, specific journaling prompts and tips so that you can you know, take some action after listening to a podcast like this that might be sort of generally interesting, but bringing it a little bit more specific to your life. So head on on to the show notes or website and I'll see you in your inbox. 
All right. Tears for uh, round two. I'm very excited about this. <laughs> Apologies to the listener in advance, just because I'm a little congested today. And hopefully by the time they listen to this, that won't be the case. But uh, thanks again, Jeff, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. People love neurobiology. So uh, here we are. <laughs> thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. And yeah. I think what's interesting this time is, you know, the concept of recovery is so important. And People usually aren't looking at it as neuroscientific process or neurobiological process, which the truth of it is, that's all recovery is truly about. So hopefully we'll have some fun with our discussion here. Yeah, that sounds good. Maybe before we even start, let's talk about what we mean by recovery. I mean, people use it. It's almost a buzzword at this point. Exactly. Recovered, recovery, all that stuff. So what do you mean when you say recovery? Well, that's the thing is in the field of eating disorder treatment, it's been hard for anybody to come to a a consensus of what recovery does mean, you know. So it's often looked at from different uh, perspectives. You know, there's a lot of people refer to the DSM-5 definitions of what an eating disorder is and does a a patient or a client currently meet these criteria under the DSM-5? And if they don't, you know, they, some people say, okay, you're in a, place of recovery or partial recovery, um, especially when it comes to things like dealing with insurance companies and everything, they're, they're often saying, well, according to the DSM-5, they don't have this disorder anymore, and, and, and then thus, you know, a lot of times benefits are cut and everything. Other people look at the f- physical parameters, you know, if somebody's struggling with like a severe anorexia nervosa, there's a lot of changes in, in cardiac stability or electrolytes, cognitive functioning. So, so people look at, well, they seem medically stable now, and, and so they must be recovered. Uh, or, or, or another perspective is the behavioral parameters. You know, well, they, they seem to be eating all of their meals and their snacks and a variety of foods, and they're not engaging in compensatory mechanisms or purging or laxatives or exercise. Uh, so that's what looks like recovery. And and again, there's always these these cognitive parameters. and. That's usually what I'm focused on in the sense that, you know, I, I always say, and it's, it's, it's the key question when, when, when I'm working with patients with eating disorders is if I say, um, how much of your spare time when, with your thoughts, when you're not actively doing something, do you, do you spend thinking about or worrying about things like food, weight, exercise, compensatory mechanisms, purging, calories, body image. Um, so again, when you're not busy, how often is that taking up in your headspace? Um, the other part of your headspace is also when you think about yourself, you know, we always say that Ed voice there, how much of that that is also spent saying, you know, I'm not deserving, I'm not a good person, I really suck. You know, it's all that negative talk that you get coupled mm-hmm. with that kind of obsessive quality. And when someone's really struggling in the worst phases, you know, they'll say 100% or more, you know, not that there is more, but it's just that yeah. all Just to be dramatic or yeah. dream about it. <laughs> so, so I always look at during the treatment process, I'm asking that question and people usually start to understand the nature of that question. So they'll say, you know, I, I would say I'm at 80% now or 50% or 60% or wherever they are. You know, sometimes there are people who think really hard and be like, I'm at, you know, 47%, you know, and, and I like that. 
I love those people. And, and the goal is kind of like, like, well, where, where, where does a person and, you know, without an eating disorder, how much time do they think worry about those things? And mm-hmm. I've always found it's always going to be higher in like adolescents, young people, college people, where it might be somewhere around 15 to 20%. And then, but maybe I say usually for most people, it's somewhere around like five to 10, 15%. That shouldn't be, you know, what do I need to eat for dinner later? Or, yeah, I look in the mirror, I'm not thrilled with what I see, but then it, it, you let go of it. So to me, it's these all-consuming thoughts. And that is really, you know, you can say, well, that's a person's mind or their attitude or their thinking, their psychology, but it's all because of a neurobiological process. So people start to, that when they lower that percentage, it's because there's a change taking place in their brain on a physical level that lets that happen. So again, it's how one defines it is not usually something that in our field we have a consensus about. And there's many attempts to that. Like there's a questionnaire called the Eating Disorder Recovery Questionnaire. And they were looking at the psychometric properties and validity of it. It was a study, um, a questionnaire, and then they were checking the validity of it uh, out of Israel that they did this. And they they looked at how will we measure this and how can we measure recovery. And it looked at certain characteristics that they look for in recovery. Lack of symptoms with behaviors, acceptance of the self and their body image, social and emotional connections, like and their reactions to the world, and their overall physical health. Again, a lot of the stuff you know I mentioned before. And they try to measure these key factors and So you might think when you look at a lack of symptom behavior, acceptance of self-body, social, emotional, and physical factors, what those all are measures of are changes that take place in the brain and central nervous system. Okay, so the brain and central nervous system has to change to decrease symptomatic behavior, to to improve body image acceptance, okay, and to improve social reactions and emotional connections, you know. So that's that's making that basis that no matter how you look at recovery underneath it all, it's based on a neurological process that has to take place. So, is there a way to define what that neurobiological process is to somebody without an MD? To define it. <laughs> well, you I mean, describe it. I don't know. Well, okay. What does that actually look like? So it's kind of like, you know. The brain, just if we look at volume and brain matter volume, there's significant brain loss that takes place when people suffer with certain types of eating disorders. And brain has gray matter, which is really involved in a lot of thinking processes and everything. And it has something, the white matter, which is like the wiring of the brain that connects certain brain regions to other brain regions. And when they looked at some of the studies, they found that like adults will lose volume in, in certain regions of the brains between like four to six percent of their, their brain cells and their brain connectivity, the volume of certain regions. Children can lose up to seven and a half, eight percent of their gray matter in their brain. All these really important neurons. Whoa. So when you look at let's just say five percent, and you know, let's say an average person may have. 100 billion neurons, okay, if you're losing uh, functional working and and, and volume loss at 5%, you know, we're really looking at hundreds of millions 
of brain cells and connections. And, and the same thing happens with the white matter of the brain, all that thing that connects one region to another. Adults can lose, again, close to 3%, children, again, around 3%. So, so the brain is losing the volume of cellular connections and it's, you know, the ability for different brain regions to communicate for, to another brain region. So if you lose this in a certain region, one region is called the uh, anterior cingular cortex. It can cause significant problems in how one processes their own emotions, how they react to certain situations. Their inability to stay calm, keep cool, is kind of gets lost because they just don't have the cells and the connections working the way they're supposed to be happening. So as that gets restored, which is our treatment through therapy, but again, food is the one that gives every thing that the brain and body needs to regenerate these types of brain regions. The studies show that the volume in both the gray matter and the white matter starts to restore itself in almost every brain region. So, so that's kind of what I'm saying as a neurobiological process, when people are in treatment, what's taking place that they start to feel better. So is there a way that it actually works or it's just sort of after stabilizing someone's food intake and through therapy, we just, if we're going to look at it in the fMRI, it looks different. The way it works is it's funny because yeah, what an individual has to do is, is, is supply all the building blocks for what our mm-hmm. body needs to, to, to essentially restore brain and central nervous function. So the bo- the building blocks of course, comes in the form of your food, you know, vitamin F it's, it's, you know, and, you know, macro, micronutrients, your vitamins, coenzymes, everything, you know. And fortunately, our body, even when somebody's in a tough case of, let's say, anorexia nervosa or severe binge eating or or bulimia nervosa, our body is pretty good at knowing what to do with those building blocks, okay? And it starts to restore that, you know, it's kind of your brain goes under, you know, construction, you know, um, of course, the difficulty that everyone encounters with trying to find their way into recovery is it takes a while for your body and your brain to restore itself. And during that time, let's say with anorexia nervosa, somebody has to keep eating and eating more. And the cycle, the, the parts of the brain to cope with that lag behind what the person has to do. So the individual goes through a lot of distress, pain, emotional pain feeling overwhelmed with food while they try to do this process. And that's really where the treatment team has to be there to kind of hold the person up and Mm -hmm. help them through what feels like something they can't do, but to kind of show them, you know, look, I'm here for you. And, And for me, it's always important that, you know, the treatment team really make it clear to the person who's working on this is, Yes, we know it's hard and it's going to keep being hard. You know, that's one thing I never do is minimize it. You can't, it's going to, you know, sometimes I, it's a lot easier, I think, to say it's going to be very difficult for you to do this. You're going to go through a lot of pain, but you can do it and people do do it. And then you try to support that. So, Mm -hmm. would you say that it would be different for somebody perhaps in recovery from more of a binge eating disorder or something like that? Because they're not necessarily malnourished and have the, neurobiological complications on that end sometimes yes the thing with like a binge eating is you know um yes you'll have fewer 
maybe concerns about am I not providing enough building blocks to the individual as opposed to working on a, a certain circuitry that keeps the mm. binge eating disorder go on. And a lot of that circuitry, circuitry takes place in the frontal lobes and the regions that often get associated with the, the brain's, you know, reward systems and the brain's addiction systems and the brain's OCD types of thinking functions. And, and so, you you know, you're working behaviorally to try to change some of those. And sometimes with medical interventions as well, you can change some of that firing off of that circuitry. But certainly the hardest is going to be anorexia nervosa because if somebody, as, as a person's BMI continues to go down, there is a direct correlation with what they're losing from, from brain and central nervous system volume uh, that when you lose those cells, your ability to do certain things, think logically, rationally, endure pain, endure the recovery process, becomes more and more difficult. The brain is compromised. And that's why it's always like, you know, sometimes when that's, there is a certain level with anorexia nervosa that if a person's in therapy, their brain is sometimes too compromised to actually process the, ther- the therapy they're receiving. It's not going to work, you know? So their cognitive functioning is something that has to be monitored all the time, you know? And that's where a lot of times when you know, I'm looking at does a patient need a higher level of care, residential or hospital? I'm I'm really often paying attention as provided their EKG and labs are relatively stable. Is where's their cognitive functioning? You know, I have a case right now where I feel you know a person was in an amazing place before they went off to college, and lately I spoke to this person and I'm like, I feel like the person's gone again. You know, their brain is yeah can't process at all even for themselves where they are now in this this stage it's like you know it's it's close to delusional you know like you're talking to a different person with almost no personality totally like it is and in this particular case that happened within a matter of a couple months you know so it's not someone being difficult it's it's boy your brain really went through something in the last couple months and has changed and can't cope at all and can't understand at all what you have to do or, you know, how you're starting to lose everything, you know, can't, we'll not make it through the semester, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess I'm thinking about the, the question that I often get, I'm sure you get this all the time about the possibility of recovery. And it's a generalization that, you know, we're having this conversation that we're talking about is it possible? But there's this almost debate of is full recovery with zero obsessions, et cetera, possible versus are you always going to have an eating disorder that's like, quote, in remission? Well, my position has been for quite a while. Full recovery is completely possible. Um, It requires a couple of things. It requires that a person who's suffering from whether it's an eating disorder, depression or anything else, they go through all of their treatment, but specifically with an eating disorder, you you know, a lot of times I feel if I, you know, if 10 people come into my office, seven of them are happy if they get to a place where they're just functioning better in life and it's not getting in the way that much, which isn't full recovery, clearly. But a lot of people say, you know, I'll stop here, whether it's, you know, effort, time, whatever, 
Mm-hmm. I, I can't push myself to go all the way to the end. This is a comfortable place. Everyone's off my back. I'm functioning well. I'm, I'm medically stable. And so that's why I think you see or hear a lot about people who say, yo, you'll always have this, you know, mm-hmm. but I go back to that question. If you ask that person, what percentage of your thoughts do you spend thinking about food, weight, body, image, calories, et cetera, they're probably going to be saying, even when they're functioning back, I don't know, 40, 50% of my time. And yeah, that still yeah. is the place where the distress comes from. But mm-hmm. the reason I feel full recovery is possible because if, if someone said, ah, no, that's not the case, I, I said, all right, let me, let me show you a dozen people and that you can talk to them and ask them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the key thing you said, do people reach a place where it's not that obsessional content? Because a person who can be in full recovery, yeah, they still might look in a mirror and say, I don't like the way this dress looks on me, but it's not obsessional. It's not, I can't function. I can't go out. They're not berating themselves or somebody is doing well. They have a loss or, you know, someone's best friend betrays them. So they eat a pint of Haagen-Dazs ice cream and it's like, that's a binge or, you know, people eating disorders can binge eat. People without eating disorders can sometimes say, you know, I'm going through something I didn't eat yesterday. That's not an eating disorder just because you had one before. It always Mm -hmm. becomes a pattern and one has to look for the reason. But without a doubt, I have many, many people that I could say, here, talk to these people I've worked with. And they'll say, usually with full recovery, they say, yes, I don't think, I don't worry. It doesn't get in my way. I'm not obsessed. If yet they'll say, yeah, I don't know, 10% of my day. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. that's what they'll say to that question. And what they'll usually say is, I can't even remember what I was like. I can't really remember how I thought like that, you know, and I find that very interesting as well. And again, I think that's because you kind of turned off all the circuitry that went along with the eating disorder and that voice. So you kind of can't remember that entity, but if you keep a piece of it in your life, it's still talking to you from time to time. And again, I think that's where Mm -hmm. people say, you know, it doesn't mean be like with recovery, same as with addiction or alcohol that you become reckless, you know, Mm-hmm. you still could be prone, but you must still take care of yourself, you know? And if you do that full recovery, I believe is possible. Yeah. I mean, there's always so many different ways to look at it, especially if somebody comes from more of an addiction model and uh, not addiction, like an AA addiction uh, model that you, this is a disease you have and you're always going to live with it. You can manage it. And some people are just buried to that idea, you know, but we also have to think about, the function that that plays, why is this person thinking this way? And and how can we dig a little bit deeper? Right. And sometimes I think about this as almost like a, a the analogy of a Petri dish. So if you keep something in the Petri dish, then it's possible then down the line, it might just grow. And before you didn't think that it was anything much. And right. then someone just believes that you always have this eating disorder and it pops up. Whereas maybe the question is, were they actually in recovery or full recovery before at all? Right. And that's why I think, you know, how you define recovery is important, you know? So. Yeah. So uh, taking in mind everything we just said and the complications that happen with, with various different cases, do you believe that recovery is possible for everyone? Yes, I do. Does that mean if somebody comes to see me and they've been through a, a lot of processes and everything, I have the answer, I know what to do next? No, I, I do believe there is a lock that needs to be picked. Okay. And everyone has a different combination to that lock. 
And, mm-hmm. and sometimes, I mean, to me, of course, the most difficult cases, even when we talk about something like severe and enduring eating disorders, severe and enduring anorexia can be one of the most difficult because if they, if a person has kind of stressed the brain to a level for years and lost a significant amount of brain volume, trying to make steps forward becomes that much more difficult. And that's where, you know, the treatment team and everything has to carefully understand neurobiologically what's going on with the individual. You know, it's not like, well, we tried this therapy and they're refusing or they can't do it. Or we tried this medication and it's not working. Or we tried this. It's You have to take into account um, sometimes what's happened to their brain and then how do I work around trying to restore some of those brain processes. And it's not always an easy, you know, path, you know, and a a lot of times out of the box thinking has to take place, you know, and, you know, it's, it's, that could be a whole nother topic of discussion of out of the box treatments, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe just briefly, if that's possible, what's an example of that? Oh, Briefly is not possible, I see. <laughs> no, 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 there's actually a lot, you know, and it all depends what they have tried and what they so you so what I'm talking about by out of box is you know, a lot of treatment providers will exhaust the traditional approaches. They'll mm-hmm. exhaust what's uh well, this has evidence based. You know, we all want to start with evidence-based treatments, but then sometimes you you might have to go beyond that and look at whether there's small studies that are done with certain with eating disorders and things like ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. There's studies that are being done with a lot with transcranial magnetic stimulation. There are studies that are done with vagal implantation that controls the firing off of the vagus nerve, which can sometimes shut down bulimic tendencies. There's quick advancement right now going on with the studies of the use of psychedelics, which people, again, can have divided opinions about, but, mm-hmm. but you know, it's being researched. It's, 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 it's something that holds promise and potential. Again, I'm not looking at these things always as first line interventions. You know, we're talking yeah. about that difficult person. And when you say, you know, does everybody stand a chance? I believe is yes. And again, now if you say why, because you know, I know we had this discussion in private more, but I've never had a patient where I feel, well, I've exhausted everything and nothing worked. So, so my personal belief is everybody has a chance at recovery. It's, you know, there can often be a lot of limitations, you know, access to certain types of treatments, financial, you know, access, finding the professionals willing to do it. But the brain, usually when what you're talking about with somebody who feels, well, I've exhausted all treatments, is the brain's compromised. It's been through a lot, you know? Um, on the other hand, a lot of people can have be newly diagnosed and had their eating disorder for the last, you know, six months, but their feeling is also like, I can't get better. This one mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then it also sounds like what we're saying is that recovery is possible for everyone. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone will attain it. It doesn't mean everyone will necessarily obtain full recovery. Now, Mm -hmm. as I thought with your last question, yeah, I believe full recovery is possible, but people can recover to a place where they're functioning well, where they're not miserable day in and day out you know, where they can probably pursue some of their interests, their likes, their passions, even, you know, 
Um, and sometimes if they have the opportunity to get to that phase, you know, I always say there's things that push people through to recovery, which is often treatment itself. And there's things that pull people through recovery, which is you, you get to start living life the way you want to live it. You have more freedom in your head to do some of your passions and that pulls you the rest of the way through recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this is a question. I'm not sure if you have an answer, so I'll just ask it and you can say there is no answer, but <laughs> I get this all the time, especially in the beginning. How long is this going to take? Right. So, uh, how, how long is this going to take? <laughs> You're correct. If you're asked that, there's there's no answer. You know, what I often tell people is if I don't know if this has ever happened, but let's say if everything is done correctly, if you sit down and your team says, okay, here's a meal plan, you follow that correctly, and you do this behavior, and you cut out behaviors, if everything goes without complications. It's going to take a year for the brain to fully heal itself, not even fully heal itself, mostly heal itself. It really takes because body image is the last thing and it takes up to like two years for someone to be okay and accept that. So in a base, but a best case scenario, one to two years is how long if everything goes perfect. But that's a word we don't even like in the field is perfect and it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So. Full recovery, unless someone says, well, I've had an eating disorder for six weeks or something, it's and it's, it's not going to recover until, you know, a year. And it's because it takes the brain a minimum of six months when you provide all those building blocks for the brain to start, like, building that foundation of recovery. But it takes a year for it to build the actual building, you know? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And then once it's built, it has to stay stable, you know, because it, it, it's a delicate building, you know, that it's built. So it, so it takes a year to get in a good head place if everything goes almost perfect. And it takes the longer you go beyond it, the more solid the foundation, you know, gets and sets. So, so, but if you want me to look at some studies, usually the one study I remember most is it would say like for females, the average length of an eating disorder was between seven and eight years. And for males, it, I think, was three to four years. And again, there's a little bit differences in the brain. It shows, you know, when addressing eating disorder issues, female brains light up more in the limbic system and the amygdala, the fear centers, whereas males who are treated with these, their brains light up more in, in the cerebral outer cortex. So there's different brain functionings. And there is this, seems to be this biological component uh, of, of who seems to have an eating disorder longer. But I, you got to be careful because if, if, if you say to someone, well, you know, studies show average length will be seven, eight years. No, not with the right treatment. Remember, that's average. And, and a lot mm-hmm. of people don't get treatment. So there's going to be people who are, you know, two, three, four, five years. There's going to be people who are 10, 25 years out. That's why, like I said, when they looked at cases and of recovery, like with anorexia nervosa, even it's like 33%, I think, in the study was like fully recovered as they defined it in 11 years. But then they said, well, let's look 25 years out. The rates was up to 66%. So, you know, it does seem with given enough time, recovery rates do happen sometimes spontaneously. Mm-hmm. And that's based on a biological process, too. 
So can you help me understand that a little bit more? What would make the process of recovery longer or more complicated or more difficult for one person as opposed to another? Again, usually what parts of the brains get affected. And, uh, okay. And, and now we can get into, you know, genetics, you know, has somebody genetically oh, yes. Let's do to that. have their hippocampal regions of the brain more affected than a person? And if they suffer PTSD versus, you know, genetically somebody who has more stability with, let's say, their neurocircuitry. There's nothing set up in their, you know, neurohormones or their neurochemistries that make them more, more prone even genetically to something. And genetics leads to epigenetics, which is triggers, you know. And just like there's triggers that can set off an eating disorder, like, you know, that, that puts mo- puts it in motion, the genetics, there's triggers also in a way that kind of help people recover, you know, mm-hmm. that can kind of turn off some of those genetics. And and so that's why like it's just such an every case. It is an individual case. And oftentimes if I'm talking, whether it's a therapist or, or people who want to share their stories with somebody else who's had an eating disorder, sometimes people think, I know what it's like. I've been through that. Well, you may have some ideas. There's a lot of common overlap. But everyone's individual case has just got a little bit of a twist, like a fingerprint, you know, mm-hmm. and those are the things that can make an eating disorder, you know, maybe sometimes recover sooner rather than later or be more prone to be subject to bore of an enduring process. Yeah. I mean, given what you're saying, it almost seems silly that people don't think of eating disorders as a medical condition or this whole recovery process as a neurobiological process. But it almost seems like some people are really invested in in thinking otherwise. Do you have any sense of what that might be about? Or have you encountered those kinds of people? People, you mean, who seem invested? Are you kind of saying, let's not look at the science or? I don't know. I think maybe this question comes up more often when people categorize eating disorders as a mental illness, which they are, and not at all a medical condition or recovery is is this sort of therapy thing as opposed to a neurobiological process? Well, again, because the way treatment is often presented is well, there, you know, there's a lot of psych- psychological processes in it. And we know, you know, usually when people are being treated, they're being followed by medical as well. But really what mm-hmm. an eating disorder is, it's a neurobiologically driven process that mm-hmm. has psychological and medical consequences. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. So the psychological consequences, the medical consequences say, well, what causes those? It's based on the neurobiology of the individual. So, you know, oftentimes when I'm talking about is an eating disorder, is it even possibly an organic process? In other words, as opposed to, no, it's not something someone chooses. It's not because of their psychology. There's many studies out there that are very interesting. It shows that like there's times where certain individuals had had brain lesions, like strokes, mini strokes, tumors, seizures. And in these cases, people have spontaneously developed eating disorders. And in some of these cases, spontaneously had remittance of the eating disorder. Okay. So I think really? that shows this you I've that, never heard. Yeah. It's not that they 
developed these brain lesions and, and had disordered like eating, they actually met criteria for being diagnosed with an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not the usual process that takes place, you know, but sometimes when you looked at people in the past that have used things like ECT, I think, you know, if there is something in the temporal lobe that maybe contributes or plays a role in the eating disorder, maybe the physicians or the people experienced with, you know, ECT have to look at that and say, is it worth we do a trial of this treatment with that? Mm-hmm. But my main point is like, if, if someone says, well, I, I just think it's just someone's psychology. It's like, yeah, but that's not really what, if you look at the brain and how it functions and how these things have arisen all the time. And there's a big organic process to it, you know? So. Yeah. That sort of complicates the way that people think about it. Yeah. And, and, and look, trying to understand neurobiology and how your brain works on, on a scientific level is not easy. So, you know, you know, sometimes it's easier to just, well, let me simplify it and just blame it on these other factors, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm curious of some of your thoughts. I know that we were talking about this offline and that you're working on some things and uh, it's possible we might only scratch the surface. I'm hoping that when people listen to this, it is, it is mainly a curious conversation and completely hypothetical and that they don't experience this personally. Um, but we talk about seed, you know, severe and enduring eating disorders and, um, sometimes rarely, but sometimes we are put in a position where somebody is pretty sick and they might be talking about palliative care or end of life sort of stuff. And I'm curious what, if you can share some of your, your thoughts on this, no. I know it's tricky, but sharing it's, some of your thoughts. It's tricky because there are differences of opinions, you know? And I'm not by any means saying there's a black and white, there's a right and wrong way of thinking about this. I, I do know a lot of people feel, you know, sometimes people have suffered long enough. Is there a time when a physician and the clinicians feel maybe we should entertain the idea of giving a palliative care approach or, you know, try to make them comfortable? But in a way, it's kind of, there's a, a built-in component of, we've exhausted everything. We, we can't mm-hmm. help. And yeah. I'm not one who believes in that because I, I don't ever feel I've reached that point. And again, I mean, I mean, I mean maybe I've had over the years, five, 6,000 people that I've worked with. I don't know. But, um, so a large number. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can't say I've ever felt that way. I've had very challenging cases, but even in the most challenging cases, most of them had some good remission, full remission, it's, it's, it's ranged. And like the study I said before, just if someone suffers significantly for 11 years, the studies show double rates of recovery 25 years out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the opinion is, I think one has to look at, well, what have I done? And again, have I really tried everything? Have I really exhausted things? And in the one camp, it's again, it's like, well, we've tried everything that's considered acceptable, traditional evidence-based treatments and you haven't responded. Okay. That's where, again, I think in a case of seed and severe and enduring anorexia nervosa, there's a camp, including myself that says, now we have to go out of the box and, and we have to see what other treatments we can do to try to help you through this. And I respect it, that there's always difference of opinions. Um, I would sit down and listen to the other side, always looking for, uh, can you make a case? I think the thing I worry most about is 
any patient or families that are sometimes offered that by saying, well, sometimes some people can't get better. An eating disorder voice wants to hear that. It wants mm-hmm. it, it kind of validates, see, I told you I can't get better. See, I told you, you know, so it hears it that way. Just like it hears most things. You look healthy means you look fat. It distorts what it hears, but it does increase the individual's kind of feeling uh, of hopelessness. And if family members jump on board as well, it's kind of becomes all reinforcing that, yes, you're, you won't get better. And that puts somebody in a very difficult place in their head. It makes treatment even more difficult if, uh, if you know, six months later, the individual does find a reason or motivation to want to try recovery again because they feel, well, my doctors even said and my, my family says I'm not going to get better. That's what that voice does. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the risky aspects of kind of going in that direction. And by all means, I don't want anyone to suffer, you know. Um, but sometimes I think like there would be a group where if, if someone's feeling I might have to talk to my patient or family about uh, end of life plan, uh, uh, palliative care, where it's just making you comfortable until it takes its course and you die, that they would say, let me refer you to someone else who does different things. And again, those different things can be some of the things I mentioned before, you know? Well, I'm sure this complicates it and probably the case with most people, but what happens when the person themselves are just not open to doing any more treatment? Well, yeah, I mean, in in psychiatry, that's common. We're getting called all the time to assess if a depressed person who wants to end their life really has capacity to make that decision. And if somebody is in a state of major depression, say, but I want to choose to die and I don't want to get better, you know, it's usually you you lack capacity, you know, courts decide competency. Are you competent for medical decisions and other things? But, Mm -hmm. um, and again, there's some people that may argue, no, I, I feel I test the patient. And again, I'm going to talk about a case where with, with severe and enduring anorexia nervosa where a brain can be severely compromised and driven in a way where I hate myself, I can't be any better, I'm doomed. Like I said, whether somebody, the typical person often feels, whether they're six months in, into it or, or 30 years into it, I can't get better. That's always the case. You know, one feels special that they can't get better. So my thing is usually there's, you can find where the brain is compromised. I do think how you have to search for that requires the expertise of understanding the cognitive processing of what an eating disorder does. You know, Mm -hmm. in other words, people with severe and enduring anorexia or just severe anorexia they can sometimes get straight a's in college courses or high school classes you know and i always say like you can get straight a's in chemistry and physically but if i put a hamburger in front of you you, your head says i'm going to gain 10 pounds even though that defies the laws of science you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so sometimes that's why the screening for things like capacity really takes a very special process. I think there should be a special process in the cases of eating disorders. But as far as I know, no one's being trained specifically. So the brain is compromised in that individual, you know, Um, just like it would be in somebody with other types of mental, you know, whether it can be severe addictions or it can be 
um, again, depressions, bipolar, schizophrenia, where it's like at times they say, I just want to die. And then again, again, we can get into the ethical discussion. Well, if a person decides they want to die, it's, you know, where do we go with that? You know, mm-hmm. but um, from a medical point, and there's multiple considerations to think about, even with palliative care, like I say, with cancer patients, you know, people go into palliative care, they've usually been through many treatment protocols, you know, and then they, then they go to experimental protocols, you know, mm-hmm. and they really often do exhaust everything you know I, I think some of the things is sometimes people then they they go to you know other third world countries for treatments because they, they're not giving up while other people may get cancer and say i don't even want my chemo even though it might help you know right but in eating disorders we don't have these protocols again in, in a consensus or uniform that says well, when you've done this, 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 now you've exhausted everything. It's kind of being right yeah. now discussed on a, what an individual clinician feels is appropriate. And then everything is subjective. So who can make a medical decision based on a subjective experience? So there's definitely two sides and there's probably even more sides to all of this, but I'm on the side of figuring out that combination, you know, and, and if I'm going to say I've exhausted everything, I'm really going to try to exhaust everything you know but Absolutely. i've never i've never felt i ever had to do that like there's something that clicked along the way mm-hmm. yeah well and again let's hope that this is this continues to be a hypothetical conversation for right. people it's <laughs> <laughs> purely uh curious based <laughs> yeah well i think you had mentioned a, a case that you were gonna talk about before i don't know if you remember that um but before i let you go i wanted to I wanted to uh, see if you wanted to share that. Again, I, th- the, I, I think you're referring to there's um, uh, during COVID, the case of the, the woman in her 70s who came to me. And, and this was interesting because it, it relates to recovery. And she was somebody who, you know, really didn't have any access to treatment. It was something in her, in her situation that, you know, people weren't really aware of the eating disorders. And she came to me in, in her 70s during COVID um, having, you know, gone through life with achieving, being very successful in her career, having promotions and being respected, but at the same time living with anorexia nervosa. And it was, you know, on the moderate to severe side, most of her life. And I remember getting this case and I'm thinking to myself, my first thought is, wow, you've probably cemented so much of your wiring on this. You know, the therapist I was going to work on the case with, I I was saying the same thing. And we were both like, we're not really sure what can we do, you know? But again, I didn't give up on that. And we started treatment and there was something in her because when she came, she said, I'm done with this. I don't want to keep doing this anymore. You know, she did not have certain things in her life like you might expect her. Like, you know, she never had a family or children. She never had an interest in relation, you know, things that sometimes the eating disorder takes away. But she was really tired again of this thoughts in her head all the time about food, weight, body image. It was still stuff at her age that meant so much. And she said, I'm done. I don't want this anymore. And despite our feeling like this might be really hard, if not impossible, she was one of the fastest responders to treatment I've ever seen, you know? And like I said, she was one of those where she really tried hard to do everything, you know? Um, And within, I'd say, you know, maybe 18 months or so, she was in um, more, more, not, not maybe I'd say a full remission, but very close to full admission, 
remission. And, um, you know, so I think that, again, there sends a point that it's, it's not like if you've had something for X amount of years, it defines that this is going to be with you forever. Um, you know, of course, when she felt this feeling of this freedom that was entering her and, and there, there came more joy and happiness and everything she was doing. And there's always that component of, oh, I only wish I did this in the past. I only wish I did this mm-hmm. when I was like 30 or 40, you know, and yeah. of course through therapy, it's like, it doesn't matter as long as you get to that point, really, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's why there's people who are struggling. They're worried about recovery. I, like I always say, it's possible. It's going to be really hard for most people, but no matter how hard or how painful it is, it's always worth it in the end. Like I've never had somebody say it wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think, you know, what I, what I'm always saying is it just changes when you change your neural networks, your neurotransmissions, it changes your mindset on this molecular and cellular level that that's what recovery is. Yeah. Um, so we, we'd like to leave you all on a more positive note with that anecdote. So <laughs> I'll stop <laughs> you right there. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us again. I appreciate it. Before I let you go, just share again, uh, where people can find you. Uh, I'm usually in my bedroom, so like sleeping. <laughs> We're gonna come knocking. <laughs> I'm not in my office, but I mean, you know, I, I always say the best place if you want, if you're interested in some of this, especially with the neurobiology, is I, I created these 15 videos. That's our. It's on YouTube. I think if you put in Desarbo eating disorders neuroscience or something like that, some version of it comes up. Yeah, yeah, it's on, <laughs> like, on YouTube. It's like 15 videos. It's I, I did this during COVID when I had some downtime and everything. So, you know, they're not professional, but they're, I don't think they're the worst ones, but you know, they're really they're wonderful, things. especially if someone's a visual person, you get to see it on the screen. Oh yeah. So I, that's where I would say like, like I, I love when people go to it because I, I do know like a lot of the stuff that's in those videos and stuff we talked about today is not what you typically hear mm-hmm. uh, about eating disorders. Yet at the same time, it's it's really underneath everything else that's talked about. Like in scientific terms, recovery is this baseline return of our neurobiological processes in your mind, in your brain, in your central nervous system. And that's what it is. It is so if someone says, Well, I think differently now, that's because of our neurobiological process. And if we want to go below that, we, that's because of changes on a cellular molecular, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So and that's where, when you go right back to the top at times, like food is important. It's, it's our building blocks for all of these processes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah. the things like therapy, uh, so when you, when you're building that therapy is designing the rooms. I like that analogy. Um, and just also you have a website you can, uh, put it oh, in here. Yeah. Well, I, I think I have drdesarbo.com and I, my, uh, really for eating disorders, I have ed-180, ed180.com. I, I don't even think you need the dash ed, the numbers 180.com, uh, for a little bit of information. The videos I think are on the websites as well. Um, so yeah, any, anyone wants to check yeah, out. I'll, the- I can link all of it in the show notes as well. Okay. So, so. you don't have to do any work people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Okay. And thank you to anyone who tuned in to listen to it. You know, I I may not know who exactly tuned in, but I think anyone who does and wants to know this stuff, to me, it, it makes me feel that those are the people who are committed to really wanting to 
help others like this. So, Yeah, absolutely. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.